Hello, my name is Jody Lee Mott, and welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the children's books we love. On this twice-monthly podcast, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts about their own favorite children's books. Today, I'm going to start off the podcast with the poem, There is a Waiting Pool in Our Park. And this was written by Arnold Adolph, and it's from his poetry collection, Street Music, City Poems, uh, which was illustrated by Karen Barber. Aaron Adolph has written a lot of books of poems for kids, and in 1988, he was given the Award for Excellence in Poetry for Children by the National Council of Teachers of English. And besides the book I mentioned above, some of his other poetry collections include Slow Dance Heartbreak Blues, Black is Brown is Tan, and In for Winter, Out for Spring. There is a Waiting Pool in Our Park by Arnold Adolph. There is a waiting pool in our park, a swimming pool for the bigger kids, and a bathtub full of cool water later on when I get back home. But right now the hydrant is open and this stream of water gushes out in an arc of ice-wet fun, so cold we shiver in the steaming summer sun. There are rainbows through the highest splashes of water, through the highest reaches of water, through the highest curves of spray. Cool, wet colors this hot day. My guest today is Darby Karchett, author of the YA series Griffin Rising, the middle grade Finn Finnegan series, uh, the middle grade novel Del Toro Moon, and its sequel, The Red Casket, which is going to come out fall of this year, 2019. Uh, you can find Darby's website at www.darbykarchett.com. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Darby. Thanks, Jody, for having me on your Dream Gardens podcast. Now, I mentioned you've got uh, this book coming out, The Red Casket, which is a sequel uh, to your um, novel, Del Toro Moon. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, maybe about the previous novel, uh, just to set us up and what we have to look forward to in this upcoming novel? Well, Del Toro Moon uh, is set in modern-day southern Colorado, and it's uh, the tale of a family of monster hunters. It's told from the 12-year-old son's Matt's uh, point of view, and he and his father and his brother, aided by their uh, battle-savvy war horses, hunt down monsters all over the kind of the rugged canyon lands of southern Colorado. Uh, the fun thing about Del Toro Moon and the Red Casket and the other books in the series is that the horses talk, and they're rather... They're not Disney horses by any means. They're, they're quite opinionated, quite aggressive, and uh, they're a lot of fun to write. I have to say, my, my horse characters, we have the, the wise, uh, avuncular figure of El Cid, and the um, aggressive black stallion Turk, and the fiery sorrow mare Isabel. They were as much fun to write as, as Matt and his brother Ben and his father Javier. The family is very close-knit. And the horses are as much a part of the family as as the dad or the two boys. Um, and although the overall tone of the books is lighthearted adventure with some wicked fun battle scenes, it's the relationship between the characters that make Del Toro Moon and Red Casket my favorite books I've written. The heart of the story is really the love between young Matt and, uh, the, like I said, the wise elder El Cid. 
El Cid is kind of one that helps Matt deal with family issues, guards Matt while they're hunting, and kind of guides Matt on his first steps into manhood. So it's it's a lot of fun. Now these uh, novels, they have kind of a, a kind of a fantastic element. They have a very specific uh, setting. Um, these and some of the other books uh, that is uh, set in the Southwest, which is where you live. And I'm just wondering, what is it about living in the Southwest that has influenced your writing, and maybe influenced the kind of stories that you write, you choose to write about? You know, Jody, I'm so glad you asked. You're the you're the first one to ever ask me that question, and it's something that's near and dear to my heart. Um, I grew up in New Mexico, and uh, as did a lot of most of my family, in fact. And I now live in Southern Colorado, which is part of the Southwest, and I've always found that the Southwest is a is a big enough landscape to really ground my books in. Uh, there's that delightful blend of cultures, both both ancient and modern. There's a wide variety of ecosystems, and there's of course there's the complex history of the Southwest. All great fodder uh, for storytelling. And and do you f- find that that living in there uh, really is kind of uh, gives you a feel for sort of uh, constructing you know the landscape and the setting that you uh, put your stories in, as opposed to sort of just reading about it. Oh, absolutely. I, I think I think most authors, if they were given the chance to visit an actual setting, they always would. Uh, so you because know, you don't want to just read about it, you want to experience it. You want to feel how the hot summer sun, you know, feels on your the top of your head or how the cold winter wind really makes a weird sound in telephone lines and how water is always a constant issue in the Southwest and how rain and hail and lightning storms are a big part of what you kind of deal with in certain months of the year. So, yeah, living here, I, I just think it makes the story more real. Now, as well as uh, writing books, you offer uh, several different uh, presentations for school visits. Can you talk about, a little bit about uh, what might one expect in uh, typical school visits, even though you don't, you have several different uh, ones that you do? Well, I'll, I'll talk about one of my favorite ones, and that's one I do for um, upper elementary students and in the middle grade. And it's called Putting Clothes on the Skeleton. And it's about the revising stage of writing. And as many people often say, real writing is rewriting. And it's during the revision stage where you're reworking scenes and getting to know your characters and, you know, really making your idioms and your metaphors that much more powerful. That's where the real magic of writing happens. And I try to present that in such a way that the students don't look at it like, Oh my gosh, I have to go back and do this again. I already wrote the story. Why do I have to rewrite it? And instead, I try to show them, gosh, rewriting is, is where all the fun takes place. The first draft's just, you know, at least for me, the first draft's hard work. But the rewriting and the revising, that's where you can really have a lot of fun with your book. And that's your own sort of uh, process as a writer yourself. The, the first draft is kind of a struggle through, and then you can really sort of um, figure out what you're going to do with the with the subsequent uh, drafts. Oh, Jody, I tell you, if I could pay someone to write my first draft for me, I would do that in a heartbeat. The, the first draft is always so hard because 
like most writers, you have that that nagging doubt, you know, can I pull this off one more time? Can I write one more book? But then once the rough draft is done and you've got that structure, uh, it is so fun to manipulate scenes and tweak your word choices. And I, I like having something to work on. There's a, there's a famous saying, um, you cannot fix a blank page. You can fix anything you write, but you can't fix a blank page. And I've always thought that was that was pretty insightful. Oh, I think so. I think so. Now, the book you chose as one of your uh, favorite kids' books is uh, the first book of the Ranger's Apprentice series. Um, in this case, it's uh, subtitled The Ruins of Gorlon. It was written by John Flanagan. Uh, it was first released in 2004 in Australia and then uh, 2005 in the U.S. And it was the first of uh, many books, uh, of Ranger's, Ranger's Apprentice books. Uh, for readers who, who aren't familiar, who haven't started the series yet, um, haven't read this particular book, can you talk a little bit about this first book and what it's about? Yes, and you should see my face right now because I'm picking up the book and I'm smiling because it is such a fun story. It is um, kind of set in a medieval kingdom that vaguely resembles the British Isles. And in it, young Will uh, is beginning his career as a ranger. And that's a mysterious fighting force, kind of like our modern day special forces and they navy seals but these rangers protect the kingdom of erlon with the skill of the bow and the arrow uh wilderness skill and you know other other abilities they're kind of the first line of defense and this first book the ranger's apprentice the ruins of gorlon uh really start out with will uh being taken on by a rather grumpy crusty old mentor halt who is a legendary ranger, um, but he's not sure about this this bright, inquisitive young apprentice he's just recently taken on. So it's a classic master and apprentice story, great coming of age story. As you mentioned, the main protagonist is Will, who we spend uh, most of the novel with. Uh, what is it about Will that makes him such a, an interesting protagonist, somebody we want to spend time with and learn about and get um, you know, invested in what's going on in his life? Well, Will is, is a great foil uh, to Halt. And interesting that John Flanagan, the author, actually wrote the series as a dual protagonist situation. So although most of the story is told from Will's point of view, quite a bit of it is also told from Halt's point of view. And the juxtaposition between Will, who is basically cheerful and upbeat and inquisitive, and then you've got grumpy, kind of sarcastic, uh, set in his ways Halt, uh, the way they kind of bounce you know, personalities off each other, great humor, uh, but also a lot of affection. And throughout the book, they become quite close to each other. But Will is like so many of us when we're trying out something new. He makes a lot of mistakes. He makes a lot of assumptions. He kind of blunders his way through. But uh, he uses a lot of humor, and he, he starts to see that there's more to halt than just his grumpy exterior. 
Uh, like you said, um, this main relationship is uh, between him and Halt, who takes him on as an apprentice. You Notes know, both a professional and gradually becomes a personal relationship, and maybe even a, a somewhat paternal one. Uh, Will we learn is an an orphan, and so how does this sort of relationship? develop and change they start off in one way but it gradually even though halt is not somebody who changes too much their relationship does <laughs> develop uh or does change as the novel progresses i was laughing because uh uh halt you're right he doesn't change much he's pretty set in his ways uh actually will probably does the most growing he learns to not only trust halt's guidance but he learns to trust himself um but I also find it was interesting that at the very end, you start seeing Halt also starting to change um, and starting to become a, a bit warmer, almost a father figure to Will. Certainly doesn't happen overnight. And they had to you know, go through many adventures to kind of build that trusting relationship with each other. Now, the other relationship that's developed in this book is this um, sort of tension or initial tension between Will and Horace, who's the other uh, boy who becomes an apprentice um, uh, soldier of, of a kind. And so I want to talk a little bit about what their tension is. We actually get some sections with just about Horace, you know, get his point of view. So how do they contrast and how, do they, how does that relationship kind of develop through the novel as well? Uh, Horace, uh, also an orphan and grew up with Will in the castle's ward, started out with, with Will and Horace being kind of antagonistic toward each other. Horace was even a bit of a bully. And I, I thought it was quite, quite clever that the, that the author chose to start off with Horace as a bit of a bully to Will. Horace is a big strapping young man and, and Will is quite a, a small, small built character and um, Horace went on to become an apprentice at the battle school and he in turn became bullied by some older uh, apprentices there and I think throughout the book it was interesting that Horace started to kind of see how he felt how Will must have felt when Horace bullied him and after a, a shared uh, danger of, through a uh, a boar, B-O-A-R, a boar fight. Horace and Will gradually became friends and started learning that they could not only trust each other in a fight scene, but they could also respect each other and admire each other's very different skills. You know, Will is quite gifted with the bow and arrow, with wilderness skills. Horace is more of a traditional knight, a superb swordsman. And throughout the whole series, they become actually very good friends. Now, a lot of this novel, at least in this first book, we get uh, a great deal of the the training of Will. We also get some of that, what Horace goes through well in, in training. Uh, why is it so important in a book like this, maybe in particular a book that's as part of a series, to show that process of training, what happens, uh, of, of all the skills they learn? Because it, it seems sometimes in novels like this you see that sort of – that training scenes, you know, of, of learning different skills, failing and, and messing things up and then gradually learning. Uh, why, why do you think it's important or, or why do readers like reading about uh, these things, about, you know, the, the process of learning? You know, I, I remember reading somewhere once that they said people love to read about other people's jobs and that 
reading how someone either learns or masters a skill is very appealing to people. I know I do. And so when I first was introduced to this series, um, which was by uh, several of my seventh grade boys who were working their way through the series, and they kept telling me, oh, Mrs. Karchi, you've got to read this book. You'll love it. You'll love it. And of course, anytime kids recommend a book, I'm all over it. So I fell in love with it, too. But I think that when when people are reading, especially in reading this book, and they learn things like when you draw uh, the string back on the bow, you try to squeeze your shoulder blades together. Uh, when you're tracking, always look out of the corner of your eye. I think learning those kinds of skills is fascinating. You may never use them, but there is something amazingly appealing watching somebody master a skill, even if it's something as simple as cooking a meal or learning how to care for a horse. And so I think it was really great that the author throughout the book scattered, you know, how to do all these different things. Uh, I think that's why books like Hatchet are so appealing because, or, or the old classic, My Side of the Mountain, where people can actually learn you know, how to do things, how to survive in the wilderness. A lot of this uh, takes place in this sort of medieval world, but basically it's a a fantasy world because there are, (coughs) you know, creatures that don't exist uh, that we learn about later on. And so uh, part of the novel, and I'm, I'm sure that continues to other novels as well, is uh, building this this new world. The world basically doesn't exist. And I don't know if you could talk a little bit about what um, John Flanagan does to uh, help build uh, this brand new world and what other writers might learn about how to create worlds in their own fiction. Well, John Flanagan did pretty something I thought was pretty clever is that although it's a, it's a very medieval kingdom that feels quite familiar to many of us who do read uh, fantasy, especially European based fantasy, he kind of took the British Isles and tweaked them enough so that it felt fresh and new, but there was enough familiarity that the reader could could have a little background schema already built in. So when he talks about castles, he doesn't have to describe the castle in great detail because we all are familiar with castles, which I thought was kind of fun. And um, instead of calling Scotland, Scotland, he calls it, I think he calls it Kick. Pickland, I, I don't remember, but he took kind of the older names of those regions of the British Isles. Um, and so even, uh, say, Game of Thrones, if you look at the Westeros land, kind of similar to Europe. You know, George R. R. Martin just, just modified it, well, quite a bit because, yes, there's dragons and White Walkers. But uh, I, think it's, I think it's interesting, and at least for me, when I write my fantasy books, I ground them in a real culture or a real time. Um, like with Del Toro Moon and the Red Casket, the heritage of the Del Toro family is grounded in medieval Spain. I just brought them over to the New World in the um, 1700s. Um, so it is grounded in real history, but then I added a fantastical twist. That's something I think if writers want to write good fantasy, always find a way to ground your uh, world building in something that your reader already has some background in. Yeah, and very much the um, most of the, like I said, most of the novel is sort of in that training. It's, it's much more realistic uh, and familiar setting. It's really sort of the last quarter of the book that we start to get 
uh, get a, a real danger and conflict. Uh, we learn, uh, we learn early in the novel of the Morgareth, the exiled lord on these, uh, bleak barren mountains of rain and night who sent these creatures called, uh, Kalkara as assassins. And, um, so if you could talk a little bit about uh, that part of the book, we don't want to give too much away, but, uh, just, and, and this is where the sort of the real fantasy element of the book really enters in. Yes, and like you said, without giving away too much uh, toward the end, the big climax is these horrible beasts, which they describe them as ape-like and bear-like combined, that attack. Um, And I don't want to give too much away, but it's really great because so many of the skills that Will had struggled to master and worked for months and months to master come into play. And I don't want to say more than that because I don't want to give it away. But it, it's quite a quite a, uh, a, a rousing, rocking, uh, uh, exciting adventure at the end there. Now, I've only read the first book in the series. You've read um, uh, a, a few of the books or all the books in the series? Or I don't know how far you've read. Uh, I've read um, all 12 of them, and I am eagerly, eagerly waiting for the next one to come out. Uh, this year. <laughs> and uh, now it's probably a little bit uh, hard, but can you give it an idea? Uh, and again, it's hard without giving too much away that uh, if somebody reads this first book, what they, I guess, in general might have to look forward to um, both in terms of story and just character development. Um, I mean, obviously, there'll be twists and things like that you don't want to give away too much about. But can you give a, a little sort of preview of what how, how these novels develop as they go on? Sure. Um, the really cool thing about the Ranger's Apprentice series is that the world is a much larger place than Will first thinks. And as the series goes, they travel further and further out into worlds uh, and out into countries that in some ways will feel very familiar. Some have a little bit of a Middle, Middle Eastern flavor. Some have as far away as Japan flavor, Japanese flavor. Um, and in the meantime, the characters are getting older. It's really interesting that the series, although it's squarely middle grade, the character, the author ages the characters quite quickly. And so, uh, and I don't think this will ruin it for anyone. Most of these books are written in such a way that even Will is an adult. So I find it interesting that all the characters are actually adults and yet kids yeah, just love these books and just eat them up, which goes to show that too often we authors think that kids only want to read about other kids. And that's not really true. Kids read for story. They read for how it makes them feel. They don't they don't really care who the characters are as long as they, they can relate to those characters. It's funny because I hear so often that uh, what makes a middle grade is the age of the characters and same with YA. And you're saying it's, it's, you know, sometimes maybe people get too stuck on those and it's more about kids are interested in the story. They're not interested, you know, specifically in how old the characters are. If, if that's a good story, it's a good story and they'll, they'll read it. Exactly. And they don't judge a book by, oh, that character's 11. I don't know if I like it. They just want to know, hey, can that character, you know, kill a ghost or, or hunt down a monster or, find a best friend in the neighborhood. I mean, The Hobbit's a, a popular book, and the main character's a 50-year-old, you know, fussy old man. <laughs> Are there any passages from the book that you'd like to share? Uh, yes. Uh, I'd like to open with the scene 
where Will first arrived uh, to begin his training as an apprentice. And so here goes. Will stared in fascination at the ranger. This was the first time he had ever seen Halt without his gray-green cloak and hood. The ranger was wearing simple brown, gray woolen clothes. His hair and beard were short and dark, but peppered with steel-gray flecks. They were both roughly trimmed, and Will thought they looked as if Halt had cut them himself with his hunting knife. The ranger stood up. He was surprisingly small in build. That was something else Will had never realized. The gray cloak had concealed a lot about Halt. He was slim and not at all tall. In fact, he was considerably shorter than average height. But there was a sense of power and whipcord strength about him so that his lack of height and bulk didn't make him any less daunting a figure. Finished staring at me? Asked the ranger suddenly. Will jumped nervously. Uh, yes, sir. Sorry, sir, he said. Halt grunted. He pointed to one of the small rooms Will had noticed when, as he first entered the cabin. That'll be your room. You can put your things in there. He moved away to the wood stove in the kitchen area, and Will hesitantly entered the room he had indicated. He put a small bundle of clothes and belongings on the bed and went back to the main room. Halt was still busy by the stove, his back to Will. Will coughed apologetically to attract his attention. Halt continued to stir coffee into a pot on the stove. Will coughed again. You got a cold, boy? Asked the ranger without turning around. Uh, no, sir. And why are you coughing? Asked Halt, turning to face him. Will hesitated. Uh, well, sir, he began. I just wanted to ask you, what does a ranger actually do? He doesn't ask pointless questions, boy, said Halt. He keeps his eyes and ears open, and he looks and listens, and eventually, if he hasn't got too much cotton wool between his ears, he learns. Oh, said Will, I see. He didn't, really. And even though he realized that this was probably no time to ask more questions, he couldn't help himself repeating just a little rebelliously. I just wondered what rangers do is all. Halt caught the tone in his voice and turned to him, a strange gleam in his eye. Well, then, I suppose I'd better tell you. What rangers do, or, more correctly, what rangers apprentice do, is the housework. Will had a sinking feeling as the suspicion struck him that he had made a tactical error. The uh, housework, he repeated. Halt nodded, looking distinctively pleased with himself. That's right. Take a look around. He paused, gesturing around the interior of the cabin for Will to do as he suggested, then continued. You see any servants? No, sir. No, sir, indeed, Halt said. Because this isn't a mighty castle with a staff of servants. This is a lowly cabin. And it has water to be fetched and firewood to be chopped and floors to be swept and rugs to be beaten. And who do you suppose might do all those things, boy? Will tried to think of some answer other than the one which now seemed inevitable. Nothing came to mind, so he finally said, in a defeated tone, that would be me, sir. And that's, I've always loved that because it shows such a great uh, rocky beginning to a relationship that later becomes one that's very, uh, very warm and, and caring. <laughs> 
And even though uh, Halt is a gruff person, he actually does have a, a bit of a sense of humor that comes through as well. Yeah, he's and he's uh, he's got some of the best snarky, sarcastic one-liners of all the all the characters. Well, Darby, uh, thank you so much for choosing this book. I I, I had read it before, um, but in rereading it, I realized, you know, I shouldn't have stopped here. And I've, I think I've got a, uh, a read on ahead. I know I've got quite a few books to get through. So thank you for picking it. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me about it today. Thanks, Jody, for having me on your podcast. You can find Darby's website at www.darbycarchit.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music, titled All Together, is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art was created through Canva, which can be found at www.canva.com. You can visit me at jleemont.com or follow me on Twitter at DreamGardensJLM. The Dream Gardens podcast is also available through iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. And if you'd like to participate in a Dream Gardens podcast, go to the contact page on my website and send me a note telling me who you are and what book you'd like to talk about. And until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading. <laughs>